Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. Welcome, or I should say welcome back, this being the second in an unknown and indeed unknowable number of Hedgeye webcasts on the bursting of what our unfailingly understated CEO, Keith McCullough, has dubbed the mother of all bubbles. As those of you who've watched part one of the series know all too well, I'm David Salem, Managing Director of Capital Allocation here at Hedgeye and the lucky guy who gets to interact over the next hour or so with two of the world's foremost experts on banking and bank regulation, my Hedgeye colleague, Josh Steiner, and my longtime friend and mentor, Bob Bruner. I've learned lots from Bob and his scholarship over the years, including especially from the book, which I will now give a shameless plug, Bob. The book that Josh and I will be discussing with Bob today. This is the just published second edition of Bob's Splendid Account, co-authored with Sean Carr of The Panic of 1907. By prior agreement with Bob, he's going to take the better part of 10 minutes or so up front to sketch the chief antecedents and elements of that panic, as well as its immediate aftermath, following which Josh and I are going to put a number of questions to Bob, most of which will focus on the germaneness and legends to be drawn from the panic of 07 for where we are today. And given the number and complexity of topics we're going to discuss, I'm not going to take even a tiny sliver of our limited time with Bob to describe his background or indeed Josh's, except to note that I'm one of literally thousands of people who've had the good fortune of being mentored by Bob or Josh or both. Bob in his capacity as a renowned teacher and scholar, and Josh in his capacity as a leading analyst of macroeconomics, banking, and other forms of commercial endeavor prone to crises and panics. So with that preface, Bob, over to you with our profuse thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, you're very welcome, David. Uh, hello, everybody. It's an honor to be with you today. The Panic of 1907 warrants everyone's attention because it was a pivotal event in the history of markets and the U.S. economy, actually the global economy, not merely the economy, but also the political, uh, geopolitical environment. It was judged to be judged to launch one of the uh, five or six worst economic episodes in the history of the United States, uh, according to Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. It uh, led to the founding of the U.S. Federal Reserve System and arguably uh, prompted a an extended period of what economists call hysteresis, that is to say, underperformance. Uh, compared to economic capacity. Something terrible went on, and the book tells the detailed story of how the crisis 
where the crisis uh, took root, how the crisis went, and then what the uh, consequences were, what the impact of the crisis was in the longer run. The sketch of the events is as follows. The crisis took root in a 10-year boom, beginning in 1897 and ending in early 1907, late 1906. And this is a boom extraordinary in the history of the United States. It was uh, a period of uh, over 7% annual growth in industrial output. And this would be not unlike what an emerging economy in, in the past few decades uh, would have done during its most buoyant period for indeed at the day from the Civil War to about 1914, the United States was the China of uh, the global economy. It was a massive sump for capital. It demanded uh, vast infusions of investment from predominantly from Europe. And uh, it grew uh, uh, at, at an extraordinarily rapid rate. Uh, the, the growth began after the depression of the 1890s. Uh, the, the depression more or less ended with the election of William McKinley as president in 1896. In any event, from the period 1897 to 1906, the U.S. economy boomed. And this is an important um, stage for me to mention because it's a regularity of financial crises, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, that they are preceded by a period of uh, unusual expansion, economic expansion. And things happen during expansions that lay the groundwork for a crisis. We can talk some more about that during the hour, but suffice it to say it was a mighty boom and it led to a mighty crisis. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com research to subscribe. I would argue that the crisis itself began with the San Francisco earthquake of April 1906. The earthquake devastated devastated much of the city. It triggered insurance claims. The insurance claims uh, ran all the way to the East Coast and then to the money centers of Europe, London, Paris, Berlin. Um, insurance companies shipped gold to the United States. This was the day of the gold standard and the gold in the United States uh, flowed to San Francisco to rebuild the city. This triggered a liquidity crunch, a credit crunch in the developed economies of the world. Uh, the Bank of England, which was the hegemon in uh, setting global monetary policy, raised its interest rates in an effort to reclaim gold reserves. In fact, uh, I show in the book, we show in the book that 
the uh, Bank of England suffered a dramatic decline in gold reserves uh, as of October 1906. And uh, this, this triggered some uh, very, very defensive action on the part of the Bank of England. Bank of England refused uh, to discount notes from intermediaries uh, that would help to finance American commerce. The combination of rising rates and refusal of the Bank of England to honor notes on the U.S. Uh, triggered a, a very sharp credit crisis in the U.S. This led to a, a mini crash in in the U.S. in the New York stock market in March of 1907. By uh, May of 1907, the U.S. was in recession, as judged today by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Over the summer of 1907, companies began to uh, cut dividends, cut uh, capital expenditures, uh, lay people off. New York City had difficulty placing bonds. It, it couldn't roll over its debt. It had to resort to J.P. Morgan uh, for a special appeal to raise the money. Morgan did raise the funds. Uh, the the uh, subway system of New York City uh, entered bankruptcy, uh, which scared everybody. But the ultimate trigger of the epicenter of the crisis was a failed speculation on the market by uh, people I would call insurgents, people who entered the financial community of New York in an attempt to create a, a large financial conglomerate they called it chain banking in the day, but uh, as as part of their efforts, they also held uh, interests in copper companies, and uh, one of the copper companies in particular was deemed by these insurgents to be the the focus of bear uh, speculators of a of a bear of a bear uh, speculation and the. Uh, uh, insurgents, therefore, undertook a bear squeeze. They tried to squeeze the shorts who had uh, taken a bearish position against United Copper Company. It turned out that when they called for the delivery of the shares, uh, all the shares came in. The, the, the short sale position was very poorly documented at the time. The, the, the attempted bear corner was uh, a, an utter failure, and this led to the collapse of two brokerage firms and then depositors in financial institutions that were deemed to be related to these insurgents uh, began to run on those banks. The, the New York Clearinghouse stepped forward to rescue those failing banks uh, and in the process, they cashiered the insurgents out of the New York financial system. Uh, unfortunately, the damage didn't stop there. The runs spread to uh, the very large trust companies of New York. Trust companies in New York warned special comment here, which is that they were insurgent institutions in their own right. They took deposits, they performed many of the functions of a bank, uh, took deposits, made loans, um, served as as trustees, uh, which was their customary business. 
but uh, they were the trust companies were not members of the New York Clearinghouse and therefore could not prevail on the Clearinghouse for assistance in case of runs. At this stage, uh, J.P. Morgan, who was attending a church conference in Richmond, Virginia, is called back to New York City and urged by the partners of his firms, his firm to commence uh, deliberations about what could be done to quell the crisis. Morgan arrives, charters a group of young auditors to run into the most threatened trust company, Knickerbocker, and uh, do, a, do a quick evaluation to see if the company was worth saving. They came back. They said they couldn't tell. There wasn't enough time. But the company was about to run out of money, and J.P. Morgan, listening to the other bankers in the city, decided not to assist the Knickerbocker. This is a pivotal moment. The Knickerbocker failed. It had to close its doors, and fear uh, spread rapidly throughout not only New York City, but it spread to other major money centers in the United States, and then uh, to small country banks in agricultural regions, in the mining regions of the U.S. and elsewhere. This was a full-blown national banking panic. The next day, um, more trust companies show up at J.P. Morgan's uh, mansion on um, Madison Avenue and uh, 34th Street. And uh, they they ask for assistance. Ma uh, Morgan sends more teams of auditors to check out the books of those companies. And the, this time the auditors come back and they say, yes, these two large other trust companies are worth saving. So he begins to organize rescue pools of private money to assist these banks lending to cash to the banks in return for the pledge of securities by those banks, by those trust companies, excuse me. And the um, trust companies uh, live to fight more days. Morgan has to renew the loans, extend more loans, but ultimately the trust companies survive. The New York Stock Exchange next appears on Morgan's doorstep and uh, announces that with the paucity of uh, uh, brokers' loans on the market, the speculators on the stock exchange would soon begin to sell their shares in fire sales, which would cause the the uh, market to plummet. And Morgan realizing that if if the brokers defaulted on their loans to banks and trust companies, in fact, the conflagration would would worsen dramatically. So Morgan rescues the New York Stock Exchange with a twenty five million dollar loan pooled by him and his associates of the other big banks in the city. The New York Stock Exchange comes back the next day, requests more loans, and he helps them again. Um, this this goes on. The, the U.S. Treasury uh, begins to lend a hand. George Cordelieu, the Secretary of the Treasury, is called to New York by Morgan, and they, they strategize. Cordelieu decides to uh, deliver $25 million in gold coin to the national banks on the assumption that the national banks would relend that money to other distressed institutions. He delivers more money to other big money centers around the U.S. Cordell is one of the major players here. Uh, 
And by early November, Morgan says, you know, what we really need to do is form a rescue pool for the trust companies funded by the trust companies. And he organizes a big meeting in his library at his home. And the trust companies dither and dither. He's actually been meeting with all of them or subsets of them for two weeks. They've reneged. They've promised to help. They've reneged again. Finally, he calls this big powwow and uh, draws them into the large room in his uh, library and locks the door. And they bargain and bargain until about three in the morning. Some one of them has to leave and discovers the door is locked. And Morgan hands a document and says, here's the document. Here's your here's your institution's name. Here's the amount of money I'd like you to chip into the rescue pool. And there's where you need to sign. And one by one, he goes around the room and all of the trust company presidents commit to this rescue pool that holds finally. It turns out that very same weekend, yet uh, the crisis moves to a brokerage firm that is teetering and and uh, the collapse of which would yet renew the crisis. Morgan devises a rescue for the brokerage firm in which uh, a principal asset of the firm consists of shares in a southern uh, steel company named Tennessee Coal and Iron. And uh, Morgan plots for uh, U.S. Steel, of which he's a director, to buy Tennessee coal and iron at uh, par value, giving uh, bonds-ish, gold gold bonds issued by U.S. Steel in return for those shares. The directors of U.S. Steel balk initially, but then they say, okay, we'll go ahead with the deal on condition that President Theodore Roosevelt will not sue us on antitrust grounds. Morgan sends emissaries, emissaries to, Ro to Roosevelt the next morning. Roosevelt hears the story. Roosevelt consents, and the emissaries call Morgan and the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and cheers erupt on the exchange uh, to, to enormous relief. This marks the, the actual start of decline of the panic. Panic conditions, stress conditions continue until January, late December, early January, 1908. But uh, uh, the, the crisis uh, continues. The, the dire spillovers of the crisis continue until June of 1908. Layoffs, bankruptcies spike, companies close, much distress in the country. The New York Stock Exchange does not recover its previous high until the fall of 1909. But uh, Congress begins to move in to consider what happened and why did this crisis occur and and who who who's to blame and what should we do about it? <clears throat> I can get into the details of several important hearings. Suffice it to say that slowly but surely, Congress decides to consider uh, de developing and, and establishing a central bank in the United States, which 
has not been the case in the U.S. at least since 1836, when and President Andrew Jackson refused <clears throat> to renew the charter of the Second Bank of the U.S. Absent a uh, central bank, the U.S. has experienced a number of crises. I count 11 banking crises between 1820 and 1913. And uh, Congress decides to, to establish the Federal Reserve System in no December of 1913. As my co-author Sean Carr and I argue in the book, this is arguably the, the high tide of the, of the progressive era. Pro progressivism during the Wilson presidency uh, delivered a number of uh, pivotal changes. We argue that this is uh, numero uno, uh, both in terms of its immediate impact as well as its long-term impact on the U.S. I could go into much, much more detail than that, David, but let's uh, let's pause there. Yeah, that's terrific. Thank you, Bob. I'm going to let Josh have the first question. Over to you, Josh. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Great. Thanks, David. Thanks, Bob. So, yeah, I, I've been reading through uh, some of your work. I was intrigued by this idea um, of what you call information problems as one of the core elements of your framework of financial crises. Um, I've got a little uh, quote here uh, from your, your blog, which is excellent. Um, you wrote, information problems are central to an understanding of financial crises over time. Innovation in financial institutions, markets, instruments, and processes breed growing complexity in the financial system. Complexity makes it difficult for decision makers to know what is going on. The resulting information asymmetries spawn problematic behavior arising from adverse selection and moral hazard. Information problems contribute to the over-optimism associated with buoyant business expansion and the tendency of debtors to over-lever and of lenders to ignore prudent credit standards. So I was kind of reading through that and I was thinking that you know, it reminds me of a phrase that we use to describe um, sort of the cyclicality of lending, which is basically that the last crisis is never the next crisis. And that sort of owes to this idea that, you know, banks obviously become consumed by recency bias. They tend to, you know, avoid uh, whatever got them into trouble last time around. Uh, and that, of course, sows the seeds for, for the next uh, crisis. But what I thought was sort of intriguing about your idea was this idea that it's really innovation uh, and new developments and the fact that there's this inherent sort of lag uh, between regulation and policy that enables you know, regulators not to really understand uh, the nature or totality of the risks that are unfolding. So I guess my question is, sort of in a, in a broad sense, you know, is that the case that that's really sort of always uh, a necessary ingredient that you have to have an innovative element that sort of blinds, uh, if you will, the regulatory framework from, you know, the, the risks that are setting in? And, and, you know, it's not uncommon that, you know, either credit events or liquidity crises, uh, you know, precipitate these, what we think of as financial crises, but they do often tend to have some new sort of element to them, some new wrinkle, right? And um, and often it, it, it is a rhyme of what we've seen historically, but 
they, they do tend to have their own sort of new idiosyncrasies. So I, I'd love to hear your sort of broader thoughts on that. And, and does that mean that we'll always have crises uh, because we'll always be innovating and developing new ideas? You, you Thank you. That's, uh, that's an excellent set of questions there. Um, I think innovation, financial innovation, is a, an element in virtually every financial crisis in uh, U.S. and world history, uh, though I would be careful to say that it is, uh, I, I doubt that it is the crisis. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency toward Ludditism. Luddites were the people who smashed the looms in the early stage of the British Industrial Revolution because they didn't like what innovation was doing to their their um, uh, pastoral uh, existence uh, there there but <clears throat> we don't we don't want to encourage ludism in uh, financial markets today on the other hand <clears throat> i do think that as uh, joseph schumpeter <clears throat> said um the, the gale of uh, creative destruction is is always present, always blowing, and it's a matter of uh, how to deal with that relentless change in markets and institutions and products and processes that is uh, uh, the, the challenge for everyone. Uh, Gumpeter was lauding uh, the entrepreneur in his uh, book, uh, you know, uh, on, on uh, capitalism, democracy, and socialism, but the the uh, the important idea there is that because the uh, financial markets, all markets really, but financial markets particularly, are so dynamic, <clears throat> um, all decision makers need to be on their toes and uh, looking out for where trouble will break out and. <clears throat> I think that much like uh, generals being prepared to always win the previous war, the most recent war, <clears throat> regulators and uh, senior bankers uh, too often are always thinking in terms of mitigating the risks that appeared in the most recent previous crisis. And we, we want them we want them to be able to deal with those risks, but we also, want them to anticipate the risks that are about to come up over the horizon at them or around the corner. And I think that's what uh, the, the history of financial crises demonstrates is a natural tendency of uh, policymakers and, and leaders to, to discount the unknown. Let me pick up on that, if I might, Bob and, and Josh. Um, you know, if you ask me to distill into a sentence that sort of the key teaching I took out of the book, Bob, it would be that financial systems are only as strong as their weakest links. Yes. And I want to sort of put a two-part question to you that focuses on 07 and today, which is, as you look back on the panic of 07, what were the weakest links in that system that really weren't regarded as integral to the system by the key movers and shakers at the time. Either they didn't think they were links or they didn't think they were weak. And then maybe more to the point for our audience today, same question about today. What do you view as the weakest links in today's financial system, whether they're regarded as such or not by investors and, and regulators? Well, at, as a prologue, I will say that I believe that 
trouble in financial crises always breaks out in the shadows. That is to say, in the periphery of the financial system rather than in the center. The trouble can gravitate to the center, as we saw in 2008. But um, so so we need to look to the periphery, to the to the shadow institutions, shadow financial institutions. In 1907, the shadow institutions were the trust companies in New York. They were lightly regulated. Uh, they they were quite aggressive in their practices. They're growing uh, at a, at an astonishing rate. Uh, and and uh, the other the other uh, source of weakness in the financial system in 1907 would be the small country banks. Uh, these are typically uh, small, relatively less well capitalized institutions with very concentrated loan portfolios, uh, uh, unit banks with just one branch, so they 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 couldn't be diversified across customers. Etc. The U.S. had over 10,000 banks in in the early 1900s. Uh, that number grew to uh, doubled uh, more over by 1929. But the the key idea is that the weak links in that day were uh, the insurgent trust companies and the smaller, relatively less well established and vulnerable uh, country banks. In 2008, we have a very different um, uh, rogues gallery of vulnerable links. Surely the mortgage loan uh, companies, countrywide, uh, Washington Mutual, uh, money market funds, the, the competitors with the banks for deposits, uh, money market funds, one broke the buck explicitly, others teetered on the brink thereof. AIG was a a shadow financial institution dealing in uh, exotic financial instruments uh, and the like. Uh, today, just carrying that forward one bit, I would add uh, those kinds of institutions to our to our list. But uh, surely uh, the the digital uh, financial institutions, cryptocurrency related, inst we we saw the crash. We've seen the the, the domino. Uh, Dominoes beginning to fall in in the crypto space a, a little under a year ago, and um, uh, the pension funds in Britain uh, had to be rescued by the Bank of England for the very same reason that the um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank experienced its uh, collapse earlier in March. Um, pension funds generally have to be on our radar screen, possibly even life insurance companies, uh, because we know that uh, the, the the aftershock of the pandemic has greatly impaired uh, uh, commercial real estate, and pension funds and life insurance companies are major investors in commercial real estate. Um, and finally, I'd add venture capital companies are a uh, shadow financial industry that warrant our attention because of their behavior, actually, in the in the lead up to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, but also um, during the epicenter of the crisis there. They, they encourage their portfolio companies to deposit cash with SVB. 
And then as the fears of SVB's stability began to grow, they encouraged their portfolio companies to withdraw cash. Um, so uh, those would all be domestic worries. I would add that uh, financial crises aren't only banking crises. They can be um, currency crises of, of uh, nations. They can be national debt crises. And there, Turkey would have to be on the uh, spotlight today, both uh, currency as well as national debt and in Sri Lanka. Uh, we we would worry the extent to which the defaults of those countries or others could emanate into the, the center of the global financial system. But I think we'd have to say that um, we have a pretty extensive list of vulnerable links today, David. Yeah, further reason to lose as much sleep as I've been losing these days. <laughs> We've talked a lot about these factors. Josh, over to you for a follow-up question for Bob. Yeah, I've got a um, a question that's sort of a, almost a link between, I guess, the last two questions. So, you know, the, this whole recent um, experience, one thing that struck me, and I, I think it took, you know, many people by surprise, was the speed with which uh, SVB failed. You know, there's sort of a funny story about how, you know, I think it was on Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, you know, the CEO was sort of sharing comments, I forget the exact circumstances, but I think it was about like, his favorite Peloton instructors, um, you know, and then of course by Friday, uh, the bank had uh, been taken into receivership. So I guess the question is, you know, do you think that the speed uh, associated with bank failures uh, has changed in the modern digital age? And, and does that potentially increase the risk of prospective crises and failures? And then I guess relatedly, um, is the speed of regulatory response something that too uh, is accelerating? I think about you know how long it took the Fed and the Treasury uh, to ultimately effectively respond to the GFC uh, versus how quickly uh, they responded to this dynamic uh, with Silicon Valley. Um, and I also, you know, I wonder a little bit prospectively about like the the looming introduction, and, and David's brought this up in the past as well, but the looming introduction of Fed now. Uh, right, the the Fed sort of new set of uh, sort of high speed, if you will, payment rails that will enable uh, effectively instantaneous settlement that's going to be rolled out uh, in a few months. So, just your thoughts about the evolution of of technology, the speed of it, and whether that sort of inherently uh, amplifies the underlying volatility framework for these types of events. Uh, this is an excellent observation. The speed has been increasing as we go from the older crises in financial history up to the present day. Um, in 1907, of course, the the main figures uh, either dealt face-to-face -face or via telephone, which was as yet still a rather novel technology, communication technology. Uh, there were crises in the late and mid-19th century. They, they were accelerated a little bit by uh, telegraphic communication, but ever since uh, the advent of the internet and uh, uh, money funds transfer over over uh, digital space, we have seen uh, very rapid and large movements of what I'd characterize as hot money. Uh, 
Hot money is always a concern in a crisis. I'm, I'm doing some research today on the crises of 1720, the so-called collapse of the so-called Mississippi bubble and um, South Sea bubble. And there was hot money there, but it took days for the money to move. Today, it takes seconds. And uh, that complicates the the reaction time, the, the, the deliberation time of regulators, as well as uh, money managers, uh, uh, corporate uh, leaders and and the like. Um, what it requires, therefore, is a regulator who, upon perceiving the threat of crisis, can move quite rapidly. And I think we'd have to say the the the, the very relatively shorter response time of the U.S. Treasury and the Fed and the FDIC in March of this year, uh, as compared with. The, the slower response time in 2008 as compared with the slower yet response time in 1998 and, and before uh, betrays the, the uh, more fundamental trend of accelerating uh, movements of the role of uh, accelerated hot money movements in global markets. Bob, let me build on that, if you, if I might. Just, I don't want to overstate the problem or the challenge here, but it's something that we talked about in part one of this series. I'll refer to it simply the two words, stranded assets. And I think you and Josh know what I mean by that. If we think about banking and the business model, we're borrowing short and lending long. We're typically providing sort of unlimited liquidity to our depositors overnight, on demand, all the stuff you just talked about with Josh, the rapid speed with which money can be removed. We're doing that while at the same time, typically on the other side of the balance sheet, acquiring illiquid assets or incurring illiquidity. And I just wonder when you take a giant step back and think about banking's future in this world of rapid technological innovation, is the business model essentially obsolete? Are we going to look back 10, 20, 30 years from now and and whatever you think of fossil fuel stocks, and, and that's not today is not the day to debate that, but there were many people pretty recently arguing those were going to be stranded assets, that they become truly obsolete. Again, leaving aside what's going to happen with fossil fuel stocks, what about banks and bank stocks? Um, your phrase stranded assets immediately calls to mind the, the phenomenon we saw in Japan uh, of, of zombie banks who were uh, uh, functionally uh, insolvent, but for whom the Bank of Japan uh, refused to declare insolvency and or to to close and resolve. Uh, th this led to the the stranding of capital in Japanese capital in those banks, who would continue to do business, but you know didn't didn't attempt to foreclose on the loans they held in insolvent uh, debtors and the like and, and from 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 a national regulatory standpoint um, declining to uh, close up a bank uh, is one way of preventing the spread of you know of bankruptcy and the spillover from the financial sector into the real sector of the economy but the the um, the fact is that uh, uh, creating 
creating a, a host of, shall we say, zombie institutions full of stranded assets is in the long run highly dysfunctional to the economy. We want capital to go where it can be put to best use. And uh, uh, this is, you know, not a good thing for capital to be stranded in on the on the balance sheets of banks um, in in companies that, frankly, uh, are not competitive, are not yielding a a uh, fair rate of return to their owners, and really have no prospect. I don't know anybody who's thought more deeply about the cost of capital for banks than my colleague, Josh. So again, I'll turn it back to Josh to, to follow up. Yeah, I, I guess um, maybe in a slightly different uh, direction here, you know, just I, I think obviously uh, the question arises, you know, just comparing and contrasting um, the events of, you know, uh, 115 or so years ago with, with today, you know, when you sort of think about this environment and, and you think about the, the sort of setup in 1907, are there any sort of especially uh, noteworthy parallels or differences that haven't already been discussed uh, between you know today and and uh, and then and or other major crises? And then I guess related to that, you know, I've been sort of wondering, just sort of thinking about you know your framework, you know. Is there, in your mind, is there sort of a set of um, of conditions uh, that can enable us to conclude that a crisis is effectively in the rearview mirror, um, or is you know is the state of financial systems just too dynamic and too complex to make that possible, uh, you know, without the benefit of a significant amount of hindsight? That it's obviously you know the case. The coast is clear, or, or there are just too many idiosyncrasies. Um. The on, on the first part of your question, I would say there are a number of important regularities, uh, uh, attributes that appear in crises again and again and again. And I've hinted at a couple of those already. One is uh, the the propensity of a boom to um, um, become the the uh, the incubator of a crisis. Not all. So the U.S. has had many economic expansions in its history, but not all of them have led to a financial crisis. What distinguishes the, the booms that incubate financial crises is extraordinary growth in credit, particularly, um, uh, probably associated with a, a relaxation in regulatory oversight, probably associated with uh, the, the uh, influx of hot money from abroad, uh, or certainly an influx of hot money out of uh, depositors' uh, savings accounts, but uh, and and a rise in market speculation. Uh, Charles Kindleberger, one of the historians of financial crises, likes to has said that um, uh, booms tend to create a demand for swindles. There's something about a boom that brings out the uh, the animal spirits, as as John Maynard Keynes uh, called them. But you know the 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 uh, the desire to seize uh, 
an outsized return for what one might believe is a small risk. So, so a boom tends to precede a crisis. Second, a crisis tends to be triggered by something, something real, a shock of some kind. Surely the uh, earthquake in San Francisco in April 196 would qualify, but you could look to pandemics, the, the, the effect in March of 2020. Uh, you could look at uh, um, there, there have been wars that have triggered crises, uh, uh, plagues, in, if you go back far enough in history, etc. Um, and what distinguishes, and, and again, we've had all kinds of shocks in global history, but the, the ones that really tend to trigger a crisis tend to occur in the midst of great strain in the financial system, strain brought on by the extraordinary boom, but also a shock that is unambiguous, that's large and costly and, and quite surprising. Um, I would say that uh, what care, your, your, the second part of your question was... Um, what, yeah, this... The second part of the question was really um, aimed at, you know, is, is there a, a set of conditions um, that you think are, are typical enough uh, that you could sort of look at them and conclude with any kind of decent probability that, you know, the crisis is effectively uh, in the rearview mirror, or is that just not really the case and there is no sort of universal set of conditions that sort of makes that possible. In other words, each crisis is its its own idiosyncratic set of, you know, factors, and you don't really get to put the the timestamp on the end of it until enough time has passed that it's clearly uh, well in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I think uh, the, the big idea would be that, you know, a crisis is gone when confidence has returned. So you would look into markets for metrics of confidence uh, such as uh, spreads on high-yield loans, um, uh, bid-ask spreads in uh, markets, various markets, uh, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Fed has some really interesting data on fails to deliver in uh, the, the Treasuries markets. And uh, those tend to balloon at times of great stress. Um, the uh, you you could look at exchange rates. Obviously, prices generally um, when it when it appears that prices uh, have returned to levels more consistent with fundamental estimates of value, etc. But um, surely trading volume would would help. Um, uh, all of those would be indicators of a return to some confidence, but uh, uh, no, I can't think of one indicator that would serve to be a uh, you know a, a silver bullet indicator, an absolutely surefire indication of a return of confidence. The <clears throat> uh, federal government publishes. Uh, measures uh, of financial uh, stability, uh, those tend to be 
uh, either concurrent or lagging measures. So you can't really look out into the future from those, but those can help give an indication. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction, long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Bob, you just mentioned the Fed and answering Josh's good question, and I want to follow up with a question. I would apologize for blindsiding you with this question, which is admittedly gnarly, but I did I did send it to you in advance. So the question is, you know, if you had the unilateral power to modify the Fed's, you know, powers and assigned duties, however you wished, what changes would you make and why? That's a that's a deep question. I think we are approaching a crossroad, David, in which we have a choice between either uh, adopting a regulatory regime not unlike Great Britain, or the UK, rather, uh, or uh, going in the other direction toward uh, less less intervention, which I don't think would be the way to go. I'm not a big fan of of uh, extensive intervention, but what we want, whatever crisis requires, is a response that is uh, speedy, flexible, and brings a lot of clout. So we need speed. So you can't have what we have is a is a balkanized regulatory uh, establishment. The the Fed, the FDIC. The, the FSLIC, uh, the, the SEC, we, we could go on and on and on. Um, we need a decision maker. We need, we need somebody who can arrive at a plan of action rather quickly for all the reasons that we discussed a moment ago. The, 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 uh, the speed of movement of hot money at, at digital uh, speed uh, really doesn't afford much time for deliberation and slow assembly of collective action. Um, but, um, you know, we worry about the, the the granting of such powers to one institution that could deploy trillions of dollars as it did in the crisis of 2020 uh, without congressional oversight. So the large question is how much um democratic controls shall we say are we willing to uh give up in return for uh crisis fighting that is speedy flexible and carries a great deal of clout and by clout i'm referring to uh larry summers who referred to a shock and awe response in, during the mexican peso crisis of 1994 or Henry Paulson, who said in 2008 he needed a big bazooka to persuade uh, the doubters in the financial markets that uh, the federal government would intervene successfully. 
to quell the crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, uh, I'm I'm uh, I don't I don't dash into the recommendation of a consolidated, centralized, super super regulator that that would assemble all the powers of what today are the balkanized regulators. I don't I don't leap into that with glee. I'm I'm enough of a small D Democrat to want. Uh, the people to have some say in the matter. Yeah, we do have a colleague who's done some really seminal work on major turnings, major rearrangements of all of those uh, mechanics that you just alluded to. And I think Josh may have a question that's based on, on Neil's work. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, um, it, you know, I, I don't know how familiar everybody is with um, with this uh, book written by um, by Neil Howe and his, his colleague uh, Bill Strauss, the fourth turning, but it's really this sort of generational framework about how sort of um, risk and perceptions sort of evolve along recurrent and predictable sort of generational timetables. So uh, I guess by the time you reach uh, every fourth generation, the sort of collective uh, wisdom and memory of previous crises has largely sort of uh, faded away, uh, which of course destines uh, that generation to repeat uh, those same mistakes, usually in a new but equally uh, impressive uh, way. And so, I guess my thought or question is, you know, as you think about uh, that type of framework, you know, are there sort of overlays or parallels uh, to the banking system, to financial crises and panics of past um, that we could think about through that lens of of uh, the fourth turning framework? I don't know if that's something you've given thought to. I've read, I've read the fourth turning and uh, it resonates uh, with me. I, I can't speak to the, the, um, the research underlying the, the thesis of, of the, of the generation of the cycle of generations, but uh, I do agree with Mark Twain, who, who is alleged to have said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It rhymes. And uh, what we see in crises is a, a uh, are, the, are those regularities I referred to a few moments ago, but a tendency of uh, each crisis to open up new uh, economic as well as political as well as social orthodoxies, and uh, I, 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 I'm much influenced by the work of Thomas Kuhn, who who wrote. Um, he, he was a, uh, a scientist of a, a, a historian of science, and he wrote a book about uh, paradigms and how they shift. Uh, in, and how they have shifted over the centuries to explain the natural world, and uh, how how the the rise of a paradigm reflects the advent of new research methodologies and new evidence. The paradigm becomes uh, bolted in place. It guides all thinking for a while until, sure enough. New evidence surfaces that challenges the the incumbent paradigm, and then there's great controversy for 
could be years or even decades. And, and gradually, uh, a new paradigm emerges to displace the old one. And that feels rather like uh, Howe's cycle, but it also uh, takes us to a place that's fundamentally new. Uh, I think of the long trajectory of financial crises in the United States as having been a search for the the economic and regulatory orthodoxy that will work, that will finally give us a stable uh, world, a stable economy that will free us from the the ills of of this market instability. But it's kind of a it's been a process over the centuries, not unlike two steps forward and one step back. And what what we are seeing today, and what we saw in 1907, uh, were is the rise of a new orthodoxy uh, with flaws uh, that that were discovered that are yet to be discovered in the current day uh, and that will gradually be tinkered with and improved upon and then bang there will be another source of instability that could not have been foreseen based on the models of previous crises and this too will generate yet a new orthodoxy i whether this whether this amounts to a, a perfect cycle along house uh lines i i i can't say but i do think that um you know the the orthodoxy that prevailed most famously in the late 19th century uh, advocated by Walter Badgett, former editor of The Economist magazine. He wrote a book called Lombard Street, which was essentially a how-to-do-it manual for central bankers. And he said, uh, you know, in a crisis, the central bank should lend freely against sound collateral and at a penalty rate. And what we've seen in the 100, what, it, what has it been, 100 40 years since uh, Badgett's book is a, uh, a gradual shedding of lending at a penalty rate and a shedding of lending against sound collateral. Uh, and and we're, we're experimenting with <laughs> how much free lending we can get away with before other bad things happen. And I think we're encountering in this crisis the consequences of very um liberal lending by the central bank in a crisis in the crisis that occurred in 2020. Bob let me jump in we're almost out of time we're nearing the end of the hour I'm going to do another crowd plug it would be shameless if you did it but I'll do it for the book but I'm pointing back to the book because we began the hour with your good succinct summary of what happened in 07 and as I reflect on on what you teach us in the book in my own separate study of what happened I'm really fascinated, if not obsessed, with the movements of two actors on the scene, obviously Pierpont Morgan, and then separately, somebody whose name hasn't come up previously in this conversation, and that would be Rockefeller Sr. And, you know, these days we're taught as, you know, professional investors, always do a pre-mortem, you know, let your imagination run wild before you write out the ticket, what could go wrong? And it struck me as I read through the second edition that Morgan didn't ask himself that question when he decided to let the Knickerbocker Trust go yeah. under. And then separately, before I turn it back to you to comment, 
you know, Rockefeller in the book, you recount him saying that he was prepared to pledge half his wealth to make sure the financial system didn't collapse. <laughs> so as I said to you offline, what was he going to do with the other half of his wealth if the system did collapse? So I would really welcome as we close the hour, um, your reflections on Morgan's actions and Rockefeller's in the context that I just drew. Well, um, both figures were uh, controversial in their day. They were the focus of uh, uh, the, the, the growing um, uh, group of investigative journalists. Uh, 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 Ida Tarbell wrote a book about uh, Standard Oil that, that prompted a great deal of uh, governmental investigation and ultimately the antitrust uh, breakup of, of Standard Oil. Uh, J.P. Morgan was similarly reviled by Robert LaFollette and other progressives for having formed a money trust. Uh, but in reality, uh, with in the absence of a central bank, uh, there there was no alternative to rescuing financial institutions that were illiquid but still solvent. They just didn't have the cash. They couldn't get the cash fast enough. They couldn't liquidate their assets rapidly enough to get the cash to meet the demands of their depositors. And that's where Morgan stepped in. Uh, Rockefeller was not as prominent a figure in the crisis, although he, uh, he, he was undoubtedly influential in the shadows because uh, the two great national, nationally chartered banks of the day, the two largest, were City National Bank, which uh, Rockefeller uh, de facto controlled, and the other was First National Bank of New York. The two banks, by the way, merged, uh, ultimately producing uh, First National Citibank, Citibank, in other words, which today is Citigroup. Uh, but uh, Rockefeller instructed James Stillman, the president of City National Bank, to cooperate uh, liberally with J.P. Morgan. Of course, Stillman and Morgan were well known to each other. They had collaborated on deals before. Uh, George F. Baker, who was the president and chairman of uh, First National Bank of New York was also very well known and a, and a very close friend and associate of J.P. Morgan. So those three were the instrumental uh, players in in the uh, financial sector in New York during the crisis and uh, arguably uh, uh, formed the core of rescue strategizing, but uh, probably couldn't have been as successful if John D. Rockefeller had told James Stillman not to get involved and to, to harbor all the resources and, you know, don't don't extend loans to these uh, risky financial institutions. I don't know what John D. Rockefeller would have done with the other half of his money, but by that date, he was so rich that uh, he wasn't he wasn't going to be hurting. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. We do need to let you go. I do want to thank Josh for his contributions and Bob, you, of course. Um, I'll note for the audience that when you published the first edition of this 16 years ago, I had the privilege of interviewing you 
about it in front of a live audience, a smaller audience than we have today, virtually. But uh, that was great fun. And I'm going to take the over on the bet of over and under whether you're going to publish a third edition 16 years from now. I'm sure you will. And I hope to have the privilege of uh, interviewing you at that time. So, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And wish you all a very good day. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This this content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgehog.com slash Terms of Service.